0: Welcome to Living a Sensory Life, a podcast that I've started talking all things sensory. So my name's Becky, I'm the founder of Sensory Spectacle and I've run this podcast to teach you all about sensory processing disorder. We're going to be interviewing people, we're going to be sharing strategies, I'm going to be giving you research and I'm also going to be explaining things to you so that you can help to understand the child or adult you care for or support just that little bit better. Okay, so um, this episode of Living a Sensory Life is all about supporting and recognising sensory needs in the classroom. And I'm really, really happy to have Tigger Pritchard with us today to be able to share his knowledge and insight into this specific area of need. So Tigger, can you tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Hello. Um, Yeah, the name's Tigger and it's my real name. That's the first thing people always ask. It was changed legally my God, almost 24 years ago. Um, I am lucky and very lucky to have worked with a wide range of neurodiverse, incredible individuals for over the past 30 years, first of all in care and then in education. And then several years ago, I decided the formal aspect of education wasn't for me anymore and I went freelance and I'm lucky enough to work throughout the country. And I do training, I do consultation work, and the sensory world and the understanding of that world is extremely important to me, as is the awesome autism brain and the new diversity in itself, and that it might come across. I love what I do, and I'm very lucky to do what I do.
0: So... I know that you have lots of pockets of work and things that you do to support um, not just the autism community um, but your local community. Can you just tell us a little bit more about what some of those roles are and how that fits in with you helping families and parents to recognise and support sensory needs?
1: Well I often say to people I wear several hats and I like wearing proper hats as well so it comes visually across as quite a good joke. There's my consultancy and training work and I go and work with lots of schools, educational settings, businesses, um, care providers and with families and individuals on a one-to-one. I will often meet people and talk about their sensory needs in the workplace over coffee and so on and so forth. Another hat I wear is that I work for the National Autistic Society in Cornwall and I'm chair of the branch here and with that there's an, lots of work involved with individuals and families and listening to their needs and designing resources and training and helping them and their sons and daughters, their children, actively access education, the workplace and help, you know, the the stress needs, the anxiety needs of everybody, really. Once people understand more about the awesome autistic brain, neurodiversity and the sensory world, then to me, it's a win-win scenario, everybody's anxiety and stress is greatly reduced. And that means an awful lot to me, so I can see myself making a difference out there with families with public with individuals with with aspects of society and so on but obviously you know some of these people are friends of mine it's great to see somebody achieve something at school they haven't done before or in the workplace or just to reach some bit more potential of their life and people then understanding the autism world autism culture and the sensory issues linked to that it's very very important to me so yeah i wear a of different hats i do love what i do but it's really important to me that everybody understands that even the smallest of of changes can reduce huge amounts of anxiety and stress and really help people reach their potential, which is just what it 's all about really to me
0: mm yeah, no definitely so you 've mentioned quite a lot that the sensory things sensory um, aspects of someone 's environment can impact you know their day to day lives and that 's really really important for everyone to understand but could you give a few examples of what some of these sensory differences can mean for the people or the families that you support in their day to day lives?
1: I mean, there was obviously a time when I was uneducated in this area and naive. And I would put my hands up, as they say, and talk about the fact that my classroom was possibly the noisiest classroom in the universe. <laughs> and I didn't know about banging cupboard doors and crinkly bags and even the sound of my shoes upon the floor. But what I saw certainly in education, I think, more than care initially. Um, because the, the the world was developing, the area around sensory world was, was being more understood, was I saw very stressed, very anxious individuals across the whole of the environment. So not just the pupil in a classroom, mm. but also the teacher mm. and the TAs and the parents. So I saw that that level of anxiety didn't just stop with a person who was fidgeting or anxious or didn't like noise or wanted to, to stim themselves or... Um, had issues with, you know, their understanding the environment and so on, I saw that the knock-on effect from that was quite incredible across the board. And I think that it it was in early education I saw that you, I would meet parents and they would be saying, you know, our son's as anxious at home or more anxious sometimes. And what can we do? What can we do to create, you know, a better environment for our child so that they're not stressed and we're not stressed and they're siblings aren't stressed and so on and so forth so i think very, very early on it, it became apparent to me with help of other professionals and research that you know we had to tweak parts of the environment to meet specific needs i remember very early if i may say so i did the one one tweak fits all if i could use that term <laughs> so i would think to myself oh, all i have to do is this and it will help everybody and as time progressed and i learned more i understood that no one tweak doesn't fit all you have to look at a person an individual so um, I remember in the early days thinking that um, I would start the day off with a quiet environment. So I would put Enya on, as it was in those days, mm-hmm. and uh, relaxing music, and we'd do some movement and some touch-based stuff, and we'd clear the classroom and it would be lovely and gentle and so on. And I realised that that worked for some of the students and not for others.
2: Mm.
1: But I didn't know why at that time. So effectively what I was doing for some students was making their lives more anxious because I didn't understand their individual needs and I think that the journey I've had and how I approach it now with parents and families individuals and educationalists and so on is that it's looking at an individual and just looking at their needs and how you can incorporate them in the classroom or in any environment really to reduce their levels of anxiety. Um, I often will introduce some checklists if I can which I might talk about later on so the individuals families professionals etc can look at a person and go right okay why why won't he sit still why won't he um concentrate why can't he hold a pen why why does he cover his ears whenever he goes near the clock on the wall and so on and so forth and those subtle changes and very reasonable quick changes can transform the quality of education at this moment in time but also you know the, the, the anxiety levels for for everybody in the environment when i say everybody i I love this win-win scenario so you have not just the person who is suffering from this sensory overload in whichever form it takes but also the teachers the Mm -hmm. tas the other pupils in the classroom environment and then the families siblings and relatives at home once they get this bigger picture then to me i I very much see it as a win-win scenario for all and some of these adjustments are really easy to make once you get to know the individual and their specific interaction with the sensory world around themselves.
0: Absolutely and I think what you've just mentioned there is really important. Yes we're focusing today on sensory needs in the classroom in education Um, but in order to be able to support someone the best that we can everyone needs to be aware of the way that sensory aspects can impact people and that's purely because it's going to affect everyone anyway. So you were mentioned about, you know, the level of anxiety for not just the person with sensory difficulties, but maybe for the parent as well. If they're going to take their child to a particular activity, um, you mentioned about how some students when they come home from school actually that's a really difficult time for family life because that child or young person is trying to then regulate themselves manage everything that's happened during that day and process that in order to just feel themselves again be able to feel like they can bring themselves back to being aware of everything that's going on around them and I've done lots of videos trying to explain the differences we might see in um, someone's characteristics, sensory-wise, within the classroom as well as at home. And a lot of the time parents find it really difficult because that child is trying to work through and manage everything that's happened during their day in their home life. Now, you mentioned the words stimming and stim, um, can you just explain what that might be? Because we do often now, when we talk about sensory processing difficulties, we use lots of different terms. And stimming might be a term that's more recognised within the autism community. Um, however, I think it does relate to lots of people, especially when we are recognising sensory differences. So could you just maybe give a few examples of what that might be and, and why stimming might be important?
1: Okay, look... Um... Your videos, by the way, you know I share them. I share them because they're incredibly useful. I share them because they're really wonderful, easy snippets of making people see visually, which is mm. a great way to learn, of the the really easy way to make very quick adjustments to people's lives and also why they're doing certain aspects of what people might interpret as a particular behaviour and so on because of hair brushing and showers and mm. teeth cleaning and so on and so forth. So so stimming, um, I see stimming as a form of almost a self-regulation of mm. coping. Mm. Um, and I think and a lot of us stim sometimes without recognising it. The term does come from the awesome world of autism. So self stimulatory behaviour is kind of like a, a, a longer version of it. Stimming is a shorter version of it. I think it's a way of, of developing an internal external strategy that helps you cope with your anxiety levels. Mm. Now, um, the example I normally give sometimes is of Anthony Hopkins, mm-hmm. who people know. Uh, an amazing Welsh actor who's known the world round, who is incredible. He was diagnosed as being awesome autistic, I believe, at the age of 77. Mm-hmm. And he talks about stimming in interviews. And he very gently holds his hands flat together with the palms touching and gently moves and rubs them. Mm. And he says that keeps him focused during interviews. There might be a buzz from the lights. There might be um, heat issues. There might be a lot of stuff going on. Uh, when he's listening to uh, somebody interviewing him, giving him questions, the, the act of rubbing his hands together helps him just keep a little more focused and calm. I know people that, these are examples I know of stims from friends and from individuals I, I, I work with. Um, I know people that will lick the palm of their hand and then smell, and that's a stim. I know nail biting could be a form of stimming. I know individuals that um, chew their tongue or chew their inner cheek on other side of their face that's a part of stimming i know one person that actively moves their thumb across their other thumb and pushes really hard and um i see that as a we've discussed that and they say it's a form of a stim because it helps them relax and calm down um humming music singing songs in in other examples i know people that will spin around uh as i said go on tiptoe um, smell I see an awful lot I know an awful lot of people I've got friends who are awesomely autistic in various jobs around this this awesome planet um, I know people who use alba sticks mm. that have um, one friend of mine when they think it's particularly overloading they have a spray and that spray has their favourite kind of flower smells mm. and they spray that a lot across their body and they consider that to be a stim and it calms them down and makes them relax and I think that at the end of the day you know for me it's it's a, an individual understanding that the world is maybe a little bit too overwhelming and developing something that, yeah, others might think, well, what's going on here? This is a bit strange and interesting. But it's a way of self-regulation. It's a way of, look, if I don't do this, I'm going to get more and more anxious. It's also a way of taking control of a degree of sensory input as well, mm. to, to just, I oh, want to be controlled. control. The world is so frightening and so scary. If I do this, I get to kind of, like, count to 10 and relax and that's a very often i experience people that may not get it i think what do you do you know you you count to 10 you take a deep breath you take the dog for a walk you sit down listen to radio 4 you open a glass of wine i consider stims in some way to be similar to that because they in a very broad term because they enable someone just to reduce a little bit of anxiety mm. and that obviously is so important for everybody but there are some individuals that, that look at brain degrees of stimming and it takes a while to to understand what's going on why it's going on the actual positiveness of the experience i will add that some stims um may have a negative impact upon the individual uh people around them and their surroundings Mm. and then that's when you do possibly work with somebody in a family and think to yourself right okay this this stim isn't something that's in the long-term interest of this individual appropriate and we've got to look at something and and think but at the end of the day stimming I think he's extremely important. The autism culture world embraces it incredibly. I know there was, I think there was a stim dance off the other (laughs) week online, which I watched a bit of, where it was individuals just just stimming away to music in their heads.
2: Mm.
1: And it looked fantastic uh, as a form of art expression almost, but they were stimming because it made them just feel so much more relaxed during their their daily activities. And, And more often than not now, you know, in public, I see so many people, some people still stare, yeah, And I see so many people, I believe, stimming,
2: Mm. um,
1: friends I know and so on. I know the the awesome output. I know the reason why they're doing it. And it's almost, and it sounds really funny, it's almost something lovely to see because you know that person has a sense of self, a sense of understanding. They're listening to the information that's coming from their body and their own senses and they're responding to it in a way that that reduces their anxiety, which which is gorgeous. But it's a very large world of stimming. And again, it's, a, it's something that's a little bit misunderstood in, in some parts because how somebody can stim might look a bit strange to others until they understand the reason why that stim is there. But I I, I think I, I stole this from somebody else, but embrace the stim. Absolutely. Because uh, I think stimming is fantastic.
0: Yeah, and, and I think the way that you've described that is really important to remember. So when I was doing my master's, the definition of stim for, for the work that I was doing was stimming is a repetitive body movement that calms or stimulates the body and I think the aspect of calming as well as the aspect of stimulating is really really important so some people may recognize this characteristic as I refer it to so this thing that the person is doing as just providing more sensory input to stimulate. Whereas for many people, actually the thing that they're doing, so when they are pacing up and down or when they are fidgeting in their chair, is actually the thing that's helping to calm their body because they're feeling where they are. And you just mentioned about people who are great at recognising their sense of self, that interoceptive internal awareness is actually massively important for us to help people to know how to regulate but also for people who are aware of themselves to be able to then support their own sensory regulation Um, and so recognizing that everyone's sensory processing is individual is then really really important to do so thinking about education thinking about the classroom can you just give us, say, four typical situations that you know are difficult for students in schools or, or that you've come across as being difficult situations?
1: OK, clothing. OK. Um, the school uniform, for so many people I meet, is devastatingly complex. I'm um, engaging with a young family at the moment where the school has changed their school uniform brand. It's pretty much the same colour But the fabric is different. Mm. The smell is different. And the young individual is, can't I wear last year's? And school are going, no, you can't, because this is this year's uniform. That was last year's uniform. We've changed. And he is struggling incredibly because unlike others around him that don't get it, he can smell the difference in that uniform. And the touch of that new blazer Mm. upon the, the, the bare bit of his arm at the bottom by the shirt is different. And it's aggravating, he doesn't like it. So I very often see clothing, and it's not just school uniform, it can be um, the shirts. As you know, the labels on shirts, you often see the image, which is, this is what it looks like to you, and it's a label. This is what it feels like to me, and it's a cactus Mm. on the back of the shirt. That one I share quite a lot on various platforms because you see it, Um, but also socks, um, shoes. So I see clothing a lot as an issue. And sometimes, you know, there's a bit of prescriptiveness around what, what children should wear in a given environment. Um, the other one sometimes is these assemblies.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, for some individuals, you know, uh, assemblies, and a lot of schools have recognised this, and it's fantastic to see that they have. But assemblies are loud. They're very loud. And to suddenly go in the environment that will smell, and is shiny in aspects, and there might be bright fluorescent lights there, and there's lots of people making a degree of noises, and they've got to sit on a bench rather than a chair sometimes, whenever the list goes on. There can be very, very anxious moments in time, and sometimes they at the beginning of the day.
2: Mm. So your
1: anxiety levels are raised at the beginning of the day, and you might not get over that, and that affects your education for all the rest of the lessons and so on. Lighting. Um, Is a revolution issue as well. Lots of people have written this over the years that are able to verbalise it, but there's amazing fluorescent lights that flicker and hum, flicker and hum, and some people can hear them. And that's linked, I think, also to sometimes the amount of electrical areas in a classroom. Mm. So the hum from a projector, the hum from um, the plugs on the walls. You often have them all in one area. They can often affect individuals, which is, which is fairly devastating as well. Um, they're easy to, to, to rectify, and the last one and the quite contentious one I would add is visual clutter. Mm. Visual clutter, I think, sometimes is we want classrooms to be inviting and informative, and. You know, expressing what that particular class is learning over a given period of time and their targets and so on and so forth. But sometimes that clutter, for some individuals, is devastatingly complex. And again, very easy things to be done to reduce that. It doesn't mean you have to all of a sudden have a play in classroom. You can do very easy steps to reduce that clutter for somebody. But but very much, I I walk into, you know, the minute you walk into school, sometimes there's all those information boards. You've got the shiny lights that shine upon. Uh, gloss laminated you've got the the perspex the glass the shine from that the different patterns on the floor and I could go on and that's your first step into school and if you have those you know there's there's accumulation of issues there in the sensory world you are raised your anxiety levels are raised just by walking into the first bit let alone then coping with the aspects of the daily routine and the the lessons etc and so on so those those are the four I kind of get the most
0: it's great so uniform clothing um assemblies visual clutter um and technology or lighting and i think yeah. those are four really really common things but also four things that we might not necessarily specifically focus on we might not think oh yeah it's that so it's their clothing which is why they're finding it difficult to, co- to concentrate on their work or as they come in in the morning they they always run through the entrance corridor And maybe they run through the entrance corridor because that person knows that it's very visually overwhelming or the reflections of their gloss laminates or the display boards or whatever it might be is very overwhelming for them and if they get a glimpse of that then that can be difficult for them to process and it so I,
1: I worked with someone the other day and the simplest strategy was the school said well why doesn't he come in through this other door mm. and that transformed his level of anxiety it was something as simple as that and they yeah. went oh we've got this door He can come in that door if he wants
0: exactly and, and...
1: that reduced his anxiety incredibly beautifully
0: yeah, so there's so many ways that we can help to support teachers and students to not just recognise these needs, but just make very simple adaptations, not necessarily changes, just um, you know, changing a chair or changing a seating position to make a huge difference for some of these students. So can you um, give us some ideas, some strategies, some ways that maybe we can help teachers to support students better. And I'm guessing that might tie in with some strategies and and resources as well that you could recommend.
1: I think that very often um, people hear the term reasonable adjustments and they get frightened Mm. because they think the term reasonable adjustment means an awful lot of money. And what I hope I show, as you do, and others is that reasonable adjustments isn't. It's just listening to what the individual is telling us in whichever forms they choose to communicate, and then adapting our environment, tweaking the environment to meet their needs to help reduce their anxiety. So, I mean, the first one I mentioned there, you know, a, a young man I worked with would, as you said, awesome. He would run, and you don't, you know, you wouldn't be running at school. It's dangerous. There's health and safety issues. The school were brilliant in responding to his anxiety needs, and they said, right, can we just? There's a door here. Which is literally just the door in the side, you know, somebody monitors that he comes in. He didn't run, he would walk. That meant his initial first moments in school were fantastic. They were positive. They were not negative from a sensory viewpoint. And that had a huge knock on effect for him, his class, his education for the rest of the day, which was wonderful. I mean very often, as I said before, one one tweak doesn't fit all, which is what I found out from personal experience. Several decades ago, I thought if I just like turn the lights down, it helps everybody. If I just play this kind of music, will help everybody. You need to know the individual. You need to know the person, and very often, um, that person is telling us. We just have to learn to listen. Um, what's happening in terms of what's raising their anxiety and so on. And when you get that information, you understand it, you decode it yourself. You think, right, all I'm going to do is this. Now, the, the tweets can be, you know, accepting that maybe. I sometimes say to teachers and schools look at the bigger picture is it really important that somebody wears socks or is it really important they stay at school and a lot of the environments are working go we'd rather have them at school thanks so socks isn't an issue um and i know lots of schools that are recognizing that fact from the stitching and so on and i know you can now get a range of socks out there that aren't as stitched up as as Socks used to be in my days, so to speak, that they reduce the input that somebody is getting from them. Um, I mentioned the, the, the lighting bit. It's, it, I was in a, a classroom several weeks ago, um, did, did a, 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 an assessment for the teaching and learning process. I realized that the classroom was very, very bright. And they had banks of fluorescent tubes. Mm. We couldn't change the lighting. That was never gonna happen. So there were four fluorescent tubes in each of these squares, and we played around with reducing it to just two fluorescent tubes in each of those squares. So it dimmed the overall light, but there was still enough light to work. Now, not only did it help the person from a sensory viewpoint, it also saved the school money. Yeah. I mean that's really and it's great for the environment. That's a, a triple win-win-win there, which is awesome. Um when I mentioned the aspect of Visual clutter. Um, there needs to be on the walls, um, you know, accessible in terms of targets and expectation levels and, and goals that the pupils have met and so on and so forth. And you can't suddenly, as I said, unless you need a very, very specific creating environment for somebody, suddenly enter somewhere where there's nothing on the walls apart from maybe, you know, the very regulated, needed stuff around communication, teaching and learning and so on. So sometimes I work with schools and they have those portable notice boards mm. moving one of those next to where a student is sitting next to their table can just reduce an air input from clutter upon the walls now you twin that then with the lighting being seated it being reduced if where they're seated you know the visual stuff is an issue the bright lights as well as the visual clutter that can have a tremendous effect again upon their anxiety and increase their learning their productivity which is fantastic to see. So very often, you know, the, the reach adjustments are really so easy to do, and it's something as simple as changing where somebody sits in the classroom, recognizing if they're sitting too close to where all the plugs are, you just move them to the other side of the classroom. That's all you have to do, and it can be incredibly awesome to that pupil and to everybody else in there just to move from one side to the other because the noise and the hum of those plugs is reduced so I often look at I look in classrooms I think what have you got here that we can use can we possibly reduce the visual clutter on the wall in that area where that student sits okay if we can't can we perhaps put some some screening upon the window can we pull the blind down just in that part of the classroom so that there isn't clutter from the the branches outside, or, or people walking by, or or birds flying by, and so on, that might you know distract somebody as they're trying to concentrate on the piece of work. Um, chair styles um, we have different kinds of chairs in school, and the texture from the fabric on them could affect somebody. They can feel quite cold if they're plastic. The shiny metal. I worked with someone last year, and we realised that the problem. The issue, the pinpricky of this individual, was that the, the 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 metal on the chair's legs was really bright, and where they were sitting, it was kind of bouncing off the, the floor, of the table into their eyes, and they really didn't like it. And they found a chair that had black legs,
2: mm.
1: and the, the the person was, oh, I can sit on this. This is brilliant. It's not so. And he actually said to us, oh, it's not so. It's not so loud as the other one. Thank you, which was lovely to hear. And so sometimes I go with teachers around the classroom and go, okay, this is how we know. This is the pupil has told us in a way that we've understood and decoded that it's too bright, it's too cluttered. what can we do. And sometimes what we do is cheap, quick, easy, but reduces incredibly the anxiety for that person. So those are the kind of things I look at. And it is sometimes as simple as, you know, you negotiate what's really important. You look around the environment and realise, well, he or she could sit there or I could put this board up, or do I need that bank of lights on? Or actually when I give him stuff to work on, can I put it on matte laminate instead of glass laminate? And they all do make a difference, which is which is superb to see.
0: Yeah, and I think it's really important to remember that things can you can try things out and it doesn't matter if it didn't work that time. And so that element of failure failure, we're not gonna get it perfect the first time because like you said the person we're supporting their sensory needs are unique so the strategy that we used or tried with somebody else may be different for this other student. However what I really like to encourage when I'm in education settings is that if you can try and Reinforce that sensory strategy for everyone because there's so many students that I meet who feel different because they've been provided with a separate resource. So they've been given a fidget cushion to sit on, or they've been given a job to do or they've been asked to move seats or, you know, something which is just for them. Whereas so many classroom settings could have a movement break altogether where they just go for a walk around the building and then come back to the classroom or have an extra toilet break or have... um, you know, times where they all move around seats in the classroom, just so that then everyone feels like they're part of it and the person who has those specific sensory needs doesn't necessarily feel like it's just them who's requiring that different level of support.
1: And I think, and I'm I'm sorry to interrupt, because I love Mm. this bit, and that's so cool and that's so awesome. And I've I've worked with, in some classrooms the student who's been able to has, has gone up and spoke to the class mm. and they've done a whole lesson around this is me. And then you've had other students go, oh, actually, that, that's that's a bit of me. Oh, I don't like this, I don't like that. And the whole mm. class then understands. Yeah. And you begin that, that road to gorgeous inclusivity. Mm. And then there are, for and different ages, there's some beautiful stuff out there. There's um, like Sesame Street in America where they've got Julia. Mm. And she talks about her sensory needs. And there's, I always say this wrong, is it Pablo?
2: Yeah.
1: On yeah, BBC yeah, yeah. television, where where they talk about sensory issues and balloon popping and so on, and you suddenly see so many children nodding their heads. And what I love then is you get that that you know that understanding that we're all awesome, mm. we're all you know human, and that it's not you know somebody doesn't stand out. And again, as I'm sure you know, the research is out there. Sometimes uh, a tweak that may be seen as being only for one person has an incredible benefit upon the others there was this one research project and I, I think it was done in in scandinavia where they do research project about clutter on the walls and learning and the result was that the less clutter on the walls the less distraction in the classroom the higher degree of learning took place mm. um and that was for everybody in that classroom environment and i think that i mean I, I, I worked with a sainsbury's were brilliant in Truro, and they do a relaxed opening between six and eight once a week, which is superb, and when we did some studies there, which is with the National Autistic Society, so many shoppers just went, oh, it's so lovely to come to a place where the lights aren't so bright and all the televisions aren't on, mm. and they realised that, you know, what, what looks like it's just for one person can have a huge benefit of pa- benefit effect, certainly in education, for everybody in that classroom, and then when they all understand, you've got, we understand, and then somebody isn't an outcast. Yeah. somebody is understood for being the awesome person they are and then people begin to share their sensory experiences and I, I just listen to it I love it when that happens because you get an understanding that we're all awesome we're all human and yet we can have our, our quirks our stims if you want to call them those as well and our sensory differences mm. and that when classrooms then start that journey and understand why an individual needs this or that table and then understand it from a very positive viewpoint, it's a lovely, lovely journey to get down the road of and it's brilliant. And it's again you know, increasing our acceptance of the neurodiversity of our awesome human species. And when that starts in school, that's definitely a big win 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 win.
0: Absolutely. And I think A lot of the things that we're talking about now are really, really great suggestions, but I can just imagine some teachers who are listening to this now thinking, yeah, but how on earth do I even start to understand my students' sensory needs? You've mentioned this, this and this, but, you know, how do I really know more? How can I find out if my classroom is actually supportive or what I can do to support my students in the classroom? So have you got any um, suggestions of resources or things that they can access just to get them going maybe before they then start to um, try out some different things in their settings?
1: I I, I mean, and I get this one a lot. And I often then say, look, this was 17 years of my life in a classroom and I really understand your next question is going to be, yeah, thank you, but how do we? How do we Mm. understand? And it's a lot easier than people think. I think people are almost... Again, the term reasonable adjustments makes people pause, thinking, oh, that means I'm going to work there for a week or spend a huge amount of money and so on. And it's all about, I think, understanding neurod- neurodiversity as a whole, understanding areas around ADHD and autism and so on and so forth. There's a degree of training there, which a lot of schools are doing, which is brilliant. And then you begin to explore the awesome sensory world through you know, podcasts and, and the YouTube clips and the tra- awesome training that you do and, and so on and so forth. Um, but, when I often sit with teachers in a, a training and teacher learning situation, um, we do the first bit so they understand a, a wealth of university in a given period of time, and then I send all specific tools. I always say, you know, just look at what your student students are telling you because more often than not they are actually If I can use the term saying out loud, there's some visual stuff, there might be some auditory stuff. The student is saying, I don't like the chair. Don't just look at a range of behaviours, think why that particular behaviour is there, be it somebody fidgeting or humming or wanting to move about or or, stimming from a viewpoint and so on. Um, And then we explore why that happens. And then it's changing that attitude towards, well, okay, there's, there's a need here, there's an anxiety issue here, which I need to look at and reduce for the benefit of, of, of you know, that individual in the classroom. There's a, a document I often lead people to, which was developed by the Autism Education Trust, mm. uh, in line with the National Autistic Society. Uh, they have some very, very good web-based resources for looking at classroom environments. This particular document is all about almost like a sensory checklist. What it does, it it helps teachers and TAs in a classroom environment suddenly look, well, actually, he or she does do that quite regularly, and then makes them think, why does that happen? Is it something in the environment? Linked to that also, there are some questionnaires I do, which actually um, one of them comes from a, um, a book on education and pathological demand avoidance, which I find extremely useful. And there's a, a, a page there that basically makes you look at your classroom You know, you enter the classroom yourself with the head-on of, you know, somebody entering the classroom for the first time, and you think, what is the first thing you see? Wow, that wall is really cluttered. Wow, those lights are really bright. Wow, you know, it echoes in here. So it almost is making teachers themselves think about the input the classroom is giving. It's that kind of paperwork, but very much so that the sensory checklist I do from the Autism Education Trust really begins to help teachers and TAs focus upon what's happening in the classroom environment and why an individual is, in their eyes, why are you doing that? Oh, Okay, well, would you believe he always seems to do that when we're playing this music really loudly, or she always seems to do that in that corner of the classroom where the clock is. Mm. And then they go, ah, oh. and as they say, the penny drops, the domino falls, whatever term you want to use, and they begin then to think about the sensory input of the classroom environment. And, and again, that questionnaire can be done very quickly. The, the look around your classroom can be done very quickly and very visually. And once you've had some initial insight and training, I find more than not lots of teachers and TAs I work with, suddenly so go, oh, well, I know why he or she's doing that now. And then they adapt the environment. Yeah. getting moving one chair from one environment to another and stuff like that, and that's when they see the differences and that reinforces them to research more and to learn more.
0: Yeah, and I think documents like that are just so, so effective because, like you said, it doesn't take up lots of time for the teacher or TA or whoever does the sensory assessment or looks at the classroom, let's say. Um, But also it it gives you then some ideas and things to try out straight away, which for while we're still trying to work out a student's specific sensory needs, because we we won't know straight away just because of something that we're observing them doing. um, It's worth then trying things and and just seeing. So I think that's a really, really important resource. And we'll share a link um, in the show notes about um, the Autism Education Trust. Um, and where they can find that document. Um, so just to finish up with, we've covered a lot of things um, today regarding sensory needs in the classroom. What would you say um, is just one little nugget of information that you would like the teachers or parents listening to go away with um, in regards to everything that we've been talking about today?
1: I think there's, there's a quote I know from a, a friend of ours called around which I can't remember the top of my head but it's something around the fact that you know that pupil in front of you that human being in front of you is communicating all the time we just have to learn to listen Mm. and I often say to teachers your student in your classroom is communicating their anxiety their specific needs around moments in day their structure needs their sensory needs and so on and so forth you've just got to learn to listen but when you do and can listen and you decode what they're transmitting, the difference it can make to them, to you, to the other pupils in the classroom environment, to the teacher and learning, to their attainment, to their potential. And then if you share what's happening with their families, to their home life, it's an incredible, I strongly see all the time, uh, um, a massive reduction in anxiety for all. Mm. And also you're helping someone reach their potential. So I think sometimes it's enabling teachers just to not to automatically box somebody and say, Oh, I just wish he or she would sit still. There's a reason why they can't sit still. I wish they stopped tapping on the table. There's a reason why they're tapping on the table. And it's just suddenly not to jump to an assumption. preconceived assumptions to what's going on but just to look a little bit further because when they look a little bit further and they understand the sensory needs of that individual and it is it is a a trial and error it's a it's a it's a communication it's a sensory journey we're upon because individual needs can change as well over over a period of time Mm. but when they begin truly to listen i think and make those first steps then then to me it begins to almost reinforce itself with positivity does that make sense so yeah. they see the tweak that they've done sometimes make a difference reduce their anxiety somebody you know learns more in that environment reaches their potential and that encourages them to listen more so I think it's really don't just box what you see straight away look a little bit further and just by looking a little bit further you could transform anxiety in your classroom environment and you could do what you're there to do which is help a person learn and to reach their potential And it isn't as difficult as lots of people think. It's really a lot easier. So I see so many teachers quickly go, oh, wow, I realised. And it's just lovely to hear and see it.
0: Oh, yeah, I totally agree, agree with that. And I think just remembering that we all work on a way of almost reward. So, you know, when I communicate with someone, I'm waiting to see whether it's through their eye contact or facial expression or gestures that they are then ready to respond or communicate back to me. And it's exactly the same when we're talking about these sensory characteristics. We're always all communicating. It's just about us trying to recognize for that person, what's their method of communicating and how do they do that? Tigger, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and information with everyone today. Can you just very quickly tell people where they can find you? Are you on social media? Do you have a website? Any relevant information if they're Cornwall based or even if they're not and they've got questions that they want to come back to you about today's episode?
1: Uh, Thank you as well. I obviously love what you do because it's so important. I've seen what you do transform people's lives and their anxiety levels and then enable them to just reach their awesome potential in so many different ways. So as you you. may have gathered, my name's Tigger, Tigger Pritchard. I have um, a website, which is tiggertraining.com. So if you look for Tigger Training on the internet, you'll find me there. I also have a Facebook page, which is the Autism Coffee Shop with Tigger Pritchard. I normally drink coffee and do something in the world of autism, so it seemed to mix together brilliantly. So there's ticket training as a website, tickettraining.com. There's the Autism Coffee Shop with Ticket Pritchard, and then there's Ticket Pritchard on LinkedIn. There's some other formats I'm developing. I've just got into Instagram, but that's very early yet, and I've got to get some pictures sorted. But those are the ones you can get me on, and my email is tickertraining at tickettraining@gmail.com.
0: Lovely. And please
1: feel free to get in touch at any time.
0: Thank you, we'll and pop those all in. Thank you so much as well. Oh, thank you. No, we'll pop all of those contacts in in the show notes as well, so that people don't have to manically scribble them down as they're listening right now. um yeah. But yes, thank you again, and um I'm sure we'll be back again getting your knowledge on other very useful topics very soon. Thank you. This podcast was brought to you by Sensory Spectacle. You can find out more about our immersive training and workshops on our website, SensorySpectacle.co.uk. We educate about and create awareness of sensory processing disorder internationally. We travel the world, helping parents and professionals to understand specific characteristics relating to sensory processing needs. On our website, you'll find books, sensory support items, classroom resources, as well as information about our trainings. If you have any questions, please do get in touch. We love to hear from you. But otherwise, thanks for listening.